The Sage Aging Podcast is brought to you by Polk Elder Care Guide, your guide to all things senior care and resources. Find the 2021 guide in English and Spanish at polkeldercare.com. Welcome to the Sage Aging Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Craven. Sage Aging will connect you to information and resources that will empower you to master the aging and caregiving journey. Weekly, I'll bring you education, inspiration, amazing industry guests, and caregiver spotlights to shed some light on topics of aging. There'll even be some freebies and giveaways, too. So grab a cup of coffee. Sit back and relax as we chat. Are you ready? Hit subscribe now and let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 44 of the Sage Aging Podcast. For most caregivers, going through the experience of having a loved one admitted to the hospital is an inevitability. It's just one of those things that comes along with the territory when you're caring for an aging loved one. So knowing that's the case, are you prepared for when that happens? Do you know what to do and how to be the best advocate possible for your loved one? I know that those are all loaded questions, but I ask it because I want you to give it some serious thought. Being prepared and knowing what to do will make a hospitalization far less stressful for all involved. My guest today is someone who's going to be able to really educate us on all of these things as she has more than 36 years experience in the medical industry. She's an RNP and I'll let her tell you more about what she does in a moment, but I also want to let you know that I've known Maggie for a long time. We go all the way back to when our kids were in elementary school, and I've seen this lady at work. She's got a heart of gold and has a passion for helping older adults and their families to navigate all things elder care. I'm so excited to share her with you today, and I'd like you to help me welcome Maggie Lazar. Welcome, Maggie. Thanks for joining me today. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Liz. That was so sweet. I know. I'm just thinking now, I remember when your kids used to go to that ice cream shop. Um, yes. 540A. You remember? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do tennis. remember. It's no longer there. It was so delicious. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. But we it's do. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it's we really kind of grew up in this community together in the elder care community where I live in central Florida. Maggie has now moved on and is here working sometimes, but doesn't live here anymore. But um, my goodness, <laughs> We have come such a long way in our community and I think all over the country as it relates to creating awareness around issues that caregivers and those that they're caring for are facing. It is no longer a conversation that has been swept under the rug. These are things that people are confronting more today than any other time because of aging baby boomers. And so here we are. We're here to talk about it. Right. Well, we're getting close to that age ourselves. So (laughs) there is certainly, (laughs) (laughs) I know you don't want to think about it, but that's the reality. Well, anyway, thank you for having me, Liz. I'm so excited to be talking to you and your listeners about the topic of caregiving and hospitalization and everything that goes with aging and living longer. Well, as Liz says, I've been a registered nurse for over 30 years. I actually wanted to be a doctor when I was growing up, but circumstances happened and I went to nursing school. And I find, I think I'm a better nurse than I would have been a physician. So I went to nursing school, got an associate degree, then got a bachelor, then got a master's. But anyway, right now I am licensed as a advanced practice registered nurse. And it was funny because my passion in nursing has been cardiology. I love the heart and anything that goes with it. And uh, I've been working in long-term care as a supervisor, dealing with dementia and the families. And then when COVID hit, it was just, oh my God, these poor folks, these poor families. Mm. And 
Many times when families would come to visit, I found myself spending more time with the family than the patient because just for them, just dealing with the overall stress and magnitude of everything they had to do and how exhausting it was and the knowledge deficit, like as Liz referred to, that you know exists with these families not knowing where to turn. And I was like, you know what? I think I would love to do mental health. So when the opportunity presented itself for me to go back to school to get my master's in nursing, it was like, that's where I wanted to go. So when this opportunity presented for me to do the psychological, the psychiatry part of it within the elder community, it was a marriage made in heaven because I'm still going to the facilities where I know people, I have connections. So when I walk in there, it's like, Maggie, what are you doing here? So, and then I, love to, that. I know, you know, and then the, and my preceptor will be looking at me. She's like, you know, everybody. So that's what I do right now. I go in long-term care facilities and I look at uh, patients. I look at their records, look at their medications. Because again, I've been on the other side. I've been the nurse. I've been the supervisor dealing with the behaviors or the family conflict and dynamics and everything that goes with it. So now I'm more empowered as a provider to be able to do something. You can refer them for psychological treatment, psychotherapy, or you could prescribe medication. So it's nice to have the knowledge that I have as a nurse having been a provider, dealing with them day in and day out, and then being on the other side, being the provider who's going to have a little bit more, I don't want to say authority, but ability to look at the problem from a multifaceted approach. It's not just a pill, but I'm looking at the family dynamics. I need to know, I understand home care. I understand respite care. I understand hospice care. So I feel like all those years, it's like the culmination of everything that I've learned over the last few years. It makes you the perfect person to help a family get through a time like this and to have that conversation here today, because you're right, you've touched every piece of it. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at a family, you know exactly what they're going through. And I think that's part of the disconnect is Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, you might have a professional who is always in the hospital and they don't work on the care side outside of those walls, Mm -hmm. they really don't know what's Mm -hmm. happening in the home. They don't understand the dynamics Dynamics, that can be so different in the home and the needs are so different family to family. It's not a cookie cutter kind of thing. Right. I know um, I did a short time with hospice care before I get this job, which I found kind of rounded up my experience as a clinician and to understand how somebody qualified for hospice care, what services we can offer a family and doing that education piece and providing that support. So it is just such a need that physicians I'm finding are really not the best providers to refer patients because their understanding of what hospice is may not be what it is actually, because everything is fluid. Everything is changing every day. Like in Mm -hmm. home care, the, you know, the criteria for admissions, the payment. So I really get a good grasp of this whole process of managing chronic care. Because unless you are entering the healthcare system, you have a loved one, you don't really have a clue how complicated and convoluted (laughs) everything is. That is so true. And I think you're going to see the rise in the use of healthcare advocates Mm -hmm. for that very reason, because things are changing. And frankly, our society is not equipped to handle the aging baby boomers. Yeah, no, absolutely not. No, Mm -hmm. uh, it is going to be crazy trying Mm -hmm. to figure things out because right now there are not enough beds in assisted living communities Mm -hmm. and in nursing homes to accommodate what we're going to see. And so Mm -hmm. what we will end up having is more family caregivers taking charge, more home care agencies providing some of that hands-on care within the home. And that's going to create a real gap as it relates to knowledge. And so as caregivers... The whole conversation today is how do we prepare people to take on that role 
as an advocate for their loved one who is aging, especially when they are admitted to the hospital. So let's start there. Tell me about the role of the caregiver as an advocate and maybe when should they consider bringing in outside help? Well, I can start with an example. I was driving home from a facility the other day and a good friend of mine had some friends with her and they wanted some advice as to how to deal with the loved one who was admitted to a, a rehab facility after a hospital stay. And I had to really clarify for that family the expectations of what that entails. So as a caregiver, I think every one of us is going to be a caregiver at some point. I took care of my mom for a couple of years before she passed. And the whole challenge of what then? What do we do if? So what any one of us, it doesn't matter how, you know, what your age is or the age of your loved one, or sometimes you're caring for a younger family member. It doesn't always have to be, you know, an older adult. So I think educating yourself as to what services or how the system works, I think that's the, that's the biggest thing. The American healthcare system is so complicated and so disjointed. It's not coming from a central point. I remember I was in England and I was studying about the system, the NHS system over there. And the coordination is nothing that we have right here. In England, when you move into a neighborhood, you automatically enroll in a clinic. That's your designated clinic. That's where you get your health care. In France, when you have your baby, you get calls as to when your baby needs their immunization, the nurse visits regularly. So you feel connected. So there is not really a good chance of you falling through the cracks. We don't have that system in the United States. We all know, you've read about it, that primary care, preventative care is just not something that we focus on. So we're all out there doing our own things. We're watching TV. We're taking supplements. We're exercising. <laughs> you know, we become yes. vegan or vegetarian trying to stay healthy. But what we need to understand is that the lifespan, yes, we're living longer because we have better care, better medication, better interventions, but the aging process doesn't stop. Okay. So our body is going to start to slow down and we can go into a long drawn out explanation as to the aging process and how it affects every single body system. Now, there is a genetic component where some people can age at a faster rate than others. It's not something that we actively can control right now, even though there's a lot of research going into genomics and looking at genes and how we can slow and reverse, whatever. So when you are not even entering a certain decade, but I think everybody should understand that the American healthcare system if you're lucky enough to have a primary care physician, you can get preventative care. That means you do your screening, you check your blood pressure, they do your lab work. But we all know the inequities and how some people just do not have access to that primary preventative care. So what happens is when somebody, I was, oh my gosh, this kind of broke my heart the other day. They were talking about the effect of the pandemic on people. And this young man, to me, he's young, 37 years old. He said, people at work see me laughing and smiling. They just don't realize I haven't seen a physician for 17 years. Oh, wow. And I'm saying this right now. It's like I'm ready to, to cry again. Because I'm thinking, here is a young person. He's working. But, you know, a lot of jobs don't offer, you know, health coverage. So he doesn't have, so he doesn't go to the doctor. And this is right. the main problem we have in the American healthcare system. People do not have preventative care. So things that could have been managed very easily become an emergency. So they all end up in the emergency room. And by law, thank God, people cannot be turned away for having no insurance. That's just a federal law. So we're thankful for that much. But then what happens, you have the hospital footing the bill for the uninsured. So when they're doing their books, they're putting like millions of dollars in uncompensated care. So hospitals are a business. It doesn't matter if it says it's non-for-profit or for-profit, like our local hospital, they still have to balance their books, right? 
So right. if they have a large portion of people, they cannot build health insurance, they can't pay out of pocket. So this is they're going to write it off. So they're going to have to make it up somewhere. So this is where the cost of insurance goes way up because those who don't pay, then it's passed on to those who can pay. So you can guarantee that every year your health insurance is going to go up. So for emergencies, people end up in the emergency room. So, okay, if you're looking at the elderly population, a lot of them do have Medicare, right? And a lot of times people don't even understand how Medicare works. When they go see their physician, the physician says, oh, yeah, because you have Medicare Part A, Medicare Part B, that could be another you know, topic for you, for your program, people to understand that Medicare is not paying all of it. You still end up having to pay some. When you say you have a senior who has Medicare, what does that mean? That means that if they go in the hospital, Medicare is listed as their primary insurance. Then they can have a secondary supplement or they can have a Medicare Part D and then you have to go into the medication. So it gets so convoluted. So I'm always, when you talk about health advocate, this is where, especially this time of the year, like we just passed, where they were supposed to enroll or re-enroll into their Part D program. Yeah, I've had people who live in California and they have their 89-year-old little mama who lives here in Florida. And then they say, oh, yeah, tell your mom to go sign up and re-enroll. <laughs> right. Thinking, Easier said than done. Seriously. Okay. And, you know, I've had patients that have been taken advantage of because of that. There are people who sure. are predators on the phone and they just badger them until they give in. So they don't know what they're signing up for. The reason it gets so complicated is, again, you have a sociological issue. Okay. You have older folks, let's say, retired here to Florida in their 60s. Oh, yeah, we're retired going to Florida in the sunshine, going to have fun, okay? They buy a house over here, and then they're in their little clubhouse community. Everything is good. Well, one by one, some of those seniors start to die. They're getting older. So now you're in your 80s and your 70s. You have no close relatives, right? Your children are scattered throughout the United States. They have their own families. So you end up with an open heart surgery and you're getting ready to go home. And I ask you, I'm like, okay, how are you going to manage at home? Oh, I don't know. Do you have any children close by? No, I don't. Do you have any friends who can check up on you? No, I do not. So now you have a whole dilemma on your hand as to how you're going to safely discharge this person home. So let's say you have a caregiver then. We're talking about hospitalization. The fact that, to say that they're going to go to the hospital, it's a given, okay? We talked about the aging process. Things are going to start breaking down. It's not a matter of if, it's when. I remember when my mom was getting older, I'm the oldest, and my siblings and I, we always had conversation about what are we going to do if. I was lucky that we were all in sync, but a lot of times that's not the case. A lot of times you have families, maybe they had some negative interactions they're not talking to each other they don't they don't agree it oh my gosh that's a whole different <laughs> set of situation yes it is so let's assume you have one caregiver who's dedicated to this person you have an older parent and she's relatively healthy let's just for the teacher and then slowly things starting to happen maybe she had a fall she broke a hip so now how do you prepare yourself I think you need to have the conversation early enough, as early as you can. First of all, understanding what this person's perception of health is. I have this conversation with my daughter all the time, you know, as to what I would want. And then she asked me the other day, she said, do you have it in writing? Okay, that's another thing. Have the conversation with your loved one, understanding what she would want. Okay, mama, if anything happens like this, what would you like to do? Do you want us to do everything possible to keep you alive? You know what I'm saying? Because right. I was talking to a family member the other day. She was struggling with making a decision for her mom who was really sick in the ICU, had been sick for a long time, been through a lot. And of course, they were trying to push her towards hospice and she was struggling. So I looked at her and I said, did you ever have a conversation with your mom? And what did she tell you? She said she told me to fight like hell. I said, well, there's your answer. Mm. Because that way it releases you from the guilt because it's not about what you want. It's about what the person would want. 
And that's why they want you to be their representative that you can, you know, respect their wishes. So again, you're, right. yeah. So you have the two trains of thought. Mom says, no, I want you to keep me alive for whatever reason. And this one said, no, no, no. I don't want you to force anything. Let me go naturally. And that's where you want to get with the attorney, you know, the elder care law attorney to draft the papers for you. So, right. And I'll, I'll direct people to episodes 10 through 14. Mm -hmm. We did an entire elder law series. So circle back and listen to those and everything that Maggie is talking about right now, you're going to hear more about that there. Definitely get that done if you've not done it yet. Perfect, Liz. Perfect. Because that relieves a lot of stress on the part of the caregiver and healthcare professionals, because if it's written down, then it makes it easy. Okay, so I won't go too much into that. So have the conversation. And this is not a time for you to try to impress your ideas. This is not about you. It's about your loved one, what they want, okay? So you have those documents. Make sure your doctor has a copy and you have a copy. I think everybody should have like a little kit. I remember someone was selling that one time. It was like a binder where you keep mm-hmm. all that stuff and it's separated. You know, you have the advance directives there. You have a list of the medications there. Uh, you, maybe you have copies of the insurance cards there so that if anything happens, you just grab that and you go. Okay. As a matter of fact, episode 29, we in detail went through creating a binder. There you go. Um, in an ep- yep, that, was, that episode was titled Being a Great Advocate for Your Loved One. There so refer to that and circle back. If you've not listened to that, you need one of those <laughs> binders. Very good. <laughs> So in addition to a list of your active medication, you want to list the uh, you want to make a list of the physician that the, the loved one is because you have your primary care doctor who is kind of the central person and then you may have other specialists. Maybe she has a cancer specialist, maybe she has an uh, endocrinologist, you know, all these doctors and their contact information because when you go into a hospital, you go to the ER and you present a doctor with this. I'm telling you, they think you've given him a gift. because I have had doctors call me, you know, an ER doctor would say, well, this person comes in and I don't know anything because they may not be in a condition to even talk to the physician. And sometimes they don't have a caregiver present, but if they know the Mm -hmm. person had a friend or home health or they're coming from the facility, then we can fill in the gaps because this is where we have problems when we don't know the whole story. Okay. And what a gift. That's a gift to yourself, honestly. If you're giving a gift to the doctor, you're empowering them to take much better care of you. Much better care of you. And this is one of the reasons that our healthcare system is so fraught because it's like we do a lot of duplication. Multiple doctors are giving orders. Sometimes the the medications are conflicting with each other. It's like no one is manning the ship. Uh, I know with EMR, electronic medical records, we are trying to do that. And, you know, it's funny because I was listening to a COVID podcast the other day and they were saying the EMR is creating problems for them because they're not talking to each other. You know, they can't track where this person got the first dose. Maybe they were in Arizona, now they're in Florida. So, (laughs) So they don't know. So even though we have the EMR, it's still not coordinated to the point where it's accessible it's seamless. Everybody can get the same information. I mean, it can't be that difficult, but that's what I'm thinking. Oh my goodness. I know with all the knowledge that we have, it just frustrates me to no end. All right, well, let's get back to the practical. So if you have your binder, this is a gift to yourself and try to keep it updated. Okay. Let's say they change your medication dose. You want to go in there and update that. You don't want to present the physician with, uh, with information that is five years old. That's not good. So it has to be kept up to date. Again, if it's an emergency, what is an emergency? What is not an emergency? And I think this is where the physician needs to do a good job teaching the patient and the caregiver. So if you're an older adult and you go into your physician, I would encourage you to try to make an appointment where you can go with your caregiver. Okay, because you don't want the doctor to tell you one thing and you forgot what he told you. Then you're trying to translate for your daughter later on. It doesn't work well. So it's better if both of you are are present at the visit. That way you can get the same information. It's not lost in translation. We're not trying to remember or try to interpret what the doctor said. Okay, and I know doctors are limited in how much time they can talk to you. But 
the nurse, when they're checking you out, ask those questions. I tell people, before you go see your doctor, write down your question. Now, don't go to the doctor with a 50-item questionnaire. They don't have time. <laughs> they're not going to answer it, okay? But whatever is more important to you, that's the burning question. And I tell patients all the time, oh, my doctor doesn't talk to me. Well, you know what? Change doctors. If you need to change your doctor, change it. Because our job as practitioners is to listen to you. Now, we're not going to sit and talk to you for an hour. It's not practical, okay? We have to always try to bring you back to, okay, what is the most pressing problem you concern you have right now? And we are trained to ask that question. What is it that I can address with you at this visit? What is the problem? Not the whole laundry list of what's been going on with you for 20 years. It's not practical, right. okay? So when you go into a hospital, now, you guys know this is without COVID, okay? Right. When you throw COVID in the mix, it's a whole different ballgame. When you go to the ER, first of all, understand that hospitals are not places you want to visit. This is not a social gathering. These places are full of bugs and stuff. So you try to go in there as little as possible. So leave the hospital for the times where you absolutely have to go. And that's why you always want to call your doctor to say, this is what I'm experiencing. What do you suggest? Okay. Mm -hmm. Even if the doctor is not really working, there is somebody on call. A lot of doctors have nurse practitioners that are ourselves. And if you're part of a group of a practice, we do have access to your record, even though we're not your doctor. Okay. So when you call and you say, oh, my doctor wasn't working. I don't want to talk to anybody else. Well, you're doing yourself a disservice because when we log on to the system, we can see exactly what medications you're on. We can read all the visit prior, what happened. So we're in the know. So we want you to feel comfortable that whoever's answering your question knows something about you, about your case. So don't be rushing to go to the hospital and sit in the ER for like 20 hours because when COVID, at the height of COVID, they didn't have beds. They were sending people, rerouting people to different places, different hospitals. It can be a nightmare, okay? Mm -hmm. So unless it's an emergency, you've fallen, you've broken something, those are the reasons why you go to the emergency. But if you say, I have a headache, my blood pressure is up, or something like that, those are things that your primary care physician can handle for you over the phone. They can call some medication for you. You don't need to go to the ER for every little thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. So once you go to the ER, you're being treated by the ER staff. Remember, these practitioners are trained to deal with emergencies. So if you present with like a sore throat and a cough, you might end up staying there for hours because they're trained to deal with the motor vehicle accidents. There's somebody who's having a heart attack, somebody who is seizing, somebody who's bleeding, okay? We also have uh, urgent care places that you can go for something minor, right? Let's say you sprain your ankle or something like that. You need to go in the ER for like, you know, two days to be seen by a physician. You can go to urgent care and get the same level of care, something that is not an emergency. So let's say it was something major, I see an example, you're having chest pain. Now, as a cardiac nurse, I will tell you, if you have chest pain, you make sure you go and get checked, okay? This is not one of those yes. things that you want to sit on and say, oh, let me see, I'll take a Tylenol and see if it'll go away. No. I always say, if it's nothing, they do an EKG. If it's nothing, they'll send you home. But don't play with chest pain. Men or women, it doesn't matter. Good advice. That's right. It doesn't matter, okay? Because we all know about the women go to the hospital and they say, oh, are you anxious? Are you depressed? You know, <laughs> And they send you home. And then next oh, thing no. you know, you're having a major heart attack. Oh, yeah, it's well documented. They don't listen to women as much as males. So if you are, if you are a woman, you're having a, a chest pain, trust me. It doesn't matter if you're in your 30s, make sure you get it checked. If in February is hot month, we don't play around with chest pain, especially if you're obese, you smoke, you have diabetes. All these things are really high risk factors for cardiac event. So you go in, in there, you're having a heart attack. Hopefully, if you're in a center where they're really trained well, they would triage you, we call that, and then you're going to go up the line and they would see you first. You get hooked up to the monitor. They can tell a little bit if you're having a heart attack. They'll draw some lab. 
they'll do an EKG, boom, at least you're being treated. The wait in the ER can be a little long, depending on how busy they are, depending on bed availability. Now, understand that sometimes you end up in the emergency room on a little gurney, on a very thin mattress that is quite uncomfortable. <laughs> you will be there for hours. And I hear that so much. And I think a lot of emergency rooms have really spent a lot of money trying to shorten that time. You know, I've seen the billboard. You know, ER wait time is only 20 minutes now. You know, you've right. seen those, I've right? I've seen that too. <laughs> exactly. Because typically some people go in there and they expect to be seen right away. You know, and then you're sitting there, you're like, I don't see anything going on. How come they're not taking me in? But, you know, because the backlog could be on the floor, you know, they may not mm -hmm. have a room available. So if your situation warrants being admitted, let's say they need to monitor you more closely. You know, there is a lot of algorithm that physicians go through that they have in their processes to decide whether they admit somebody or not. So let's say you're having a heart attack and they say, okay, you go into the cath lab, you're going to be whisked up there and taken care of right away. But if it's something a little minor, you might stay in observation. Now they even have observation units where they're kind of closer to the ER where they can keep you and see if you get better in a day or two and then they send you home. But if you need to be admitted, then you admit it to the floor. So while you're in the ER, if you are the person, we call it legally authorized person, the LAP. So when you go into a hospital, they always want to know who is the person who is legally authorized to speak for this person, okay? That's why if you have your advanced directive, your healthcare surrogate form, you whisk your, your thing out, you give them, make them a copy, you're legal. So they are going mm -hmm. to talk to you about your mom. Your mom could still be, you know, alert and but then you in the conversation, okay? So they are telling you what they're thinking, what they found out, and what the plans are. So they whisk you up to a room. Now, with COVID, there are restrictions. <laughs> right. It used to be you can go and sit with your mom. Sometimes they let you spend the night. Not anymore. With COVID, first of all, you have to stop there. They have to screen you, take your temperature, ask you these questions, whether you've traveled, you know, the screening form. And then they're only limiting people, some hospital, to one visitor per day. One That's visitor so scary. per day. I know. Yeah. So from 8 o'clock to, let's say, 9 or 8 p.m., those are the visiting hours. And only one person per day. You can't have two people in that room. If that person is admitted with COVID, that's even worse, even more restricted. And we have to understand that they're doing that to protect themselves and you and of the community. Course. So understand what those restrictions might be and try to work with the staff. Okay. And also I was talking to this person and she's talking, well, I'm waiting for the doctor to call me and no one's calling me. Oh, the nurse called me and said this and that. And it was like, she dismissed whatever the nurse said and was waiting for the doctor. I said, let me tell you something. This is not the way it worked. There is a reason why you have nurses around the clock, right? Mm -hmm. The doctor might come in once a day. Now, he may not be the same one coming because most physician groups have multiple providers. So you don't have like uh, an authority on who the doctor is and this is the only one who's... You don't have any control over that. Right. <laughs> so... When you say, oh, I'm expecting the doctor to call me back, and the doctor said, okay, tell, call her and tell her this and this and that, and then you're dismissing your nurse, I say you're doing yourself a disservice. You want to become friends with your loved one's caregivers. When I say mm -hmm. friend, I mean friendly, okay? You come in, you say thank you, you smile, you thank them. Let me tell you, your loved one will get much better care than if you go in there with an attitude or you're upset about something and you're treating the staff like, you know, <laughs> something right. that I can't Right. Say. That is such a key point that I yes. think we don't ever mention. And it's true because mm -hmm. the nurses are the ones who are there 24-7 mm -hmm. caring mm -hmm. for your loved one. They mm -hmm. know that mom has been with no appetite or mm -hmm. that she 
you know, has had a headache all day. The doctor really doesn't know all of those things. He's Mm -hmm. just getting a synopsis from the nurses. That's it. And even uh, in in a hospital or a nursing home, your nurse's aides. Oh my God. We as nurses rely on them to tell us how these patients are, because they're the one event that's spending more time with the patient. So we will go to them and we'll say, how is so-and-so? Did she sleep last night? Uh, Did she have a fall? Is she complaining of anything? Remember, this is a team effort. And you as a caregiver Mm -hmm. become part of the team. If you want good, accurate information from your caregivers, from your providers, you need to be open. You need to be respectful. And you need to thank them for what they're doing. Yeah. And honestly, human nature comes into play because how many times do you get approached by a negative person before you say, oh my goodness, I need to avoid that because that's (laughs) not good for my mental health. That's right. But it's true. What do they say? Honey attracts more bees. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And you know, I don't think uh, providers, nurses or CNAs are expecting anything unusual from you. Just a little bit of respect in a little bit of appreciation. That's all. We know it's our job, right? Okay. That's a very, very good key point. Yes. When is it appropriate to be expecting to have communication with your doctor? It's very difficult to, to predict. So what I usually suggest, if a caregiver is not comfortable... Now, the thing is, if it's something major... I don't think as a provider, I want to ask a nurse to have a conversation with a family member. That's your responsibility, okay? If you have abnormal labs, abnormal test results, and my personal feeling is the physician needs to be the one to approach the family to say, this is what the results are, okay? And this is what the plan, that's what I'm suggesting, I'm recommending we do this and that, okay? We can go after, as nurses, we can go after the doctor. Sometimes the doctor talks in big words and the family is like, what did he say? You know, it just went over their head. We can kind of paraphrase and explain. So we go behind the physician. I used to have a doctor who would come to this hospital. Somebody's going to have a major heart surgery. And he had we had a board in the room that's facing the bed. And he would take a chalk and he's like, oh, this is what we're going to do. Blah, 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 blah. And he's going to scribble a few <laughs> things up there. And the patient is sitting there with her, eye, with her mouth open. And then after the physician goes 99%, she said, what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> so we had to go explain in simple term. Right. We don't need to use medical terminology to explain to you what the doctor said. So I think this being in the know, you could say, um, you know, I'm really appreciative of what you guys are doing for my mom. Thank you so much for caring for her. I know she could be a little difficult. We're like, oh, no problem. You know, is it okay if I call you in the morning and I can get an update on how she's doing? Now, which nurse is going to say no? No one's going to say no, especially now in hospital. All the nurses have portable phones. If somebody calls you, you don't answer. It's on you because when they do the assignment, uh, you know, in the hospital, they have your name, they have the room numbers and your phone number and your extension. Okay. So if the secretary answers the phone, she'll transfer the call to your phone. So unless, you know, you're indisposed then you need to talk to that family about their loved one. And then, like I said, you may want to draw the line as to, you know, you really need to talk to the doctor, especially if you're uncomfortable about something sensitive or like a really bad result from a test. You know, say, I can have Dr. So-and-so call you. This is the best way if you want to talk to the doctor themselves. You can say, this Mm -hmm. is my phone number. Would you please have him talk to me? I really want to talk to him. And I think most physicians are very open to that. Now, they have a lot of meetings. They have a lot of things. They have to round. So it may not be at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's not going to happen. But if he has your number, he will call you back. Most physicians will call you back. I've heard family members say a lot of time, well, I left my number. Nobody calls me. Most of the time, the doctor does try to call. So, and also... Don't be hung up on you want the doctor. Most physician groups have lots of practitioners working for them. And they're like in line with the physician. So if the doctor doesn't call you, they'll say, this is Maggie. I'm the nurse practitioner and I work with Dr. So-and-so. He asked me to give you a call because he's tied up. Hopefully you're okay with that. And Mm -hmm. I know some families are not. But that way you're making more stress for yourself. You know, I have to be honest, when the use of nurse practitioners first was coming on the scene Mm -hmm. and, 
you began to see that as you were going to your doctor's appointments Mm -hmm. and being pushed to a nurse practitioner instead. Mm -hmm. I have to admit in the beginning, I was not really happy with that. That was scary to me. But over time, you know, now you have um, PAs Mm -hmm. and you have nurse practitioners. And I got to tell you, my interactions with those folks are good every (laughs) single time. I feel like I get the attention that I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the knowledge base is there. Mm -hmm. Um, I have absolutely no problem dealing with them anymore. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you for saying that. But you know, it is a process, you know, because the nurse practitioner movement started because of a lack of primary care physicians. Okay. The doctors just had a load that was unmanageable. They could not manage it. And nurse practitioners and PAs have really good outcome. They're measured. The satisfaction of the patient, it's really high. So mm-hmm. again, you know, in our world, I know people don't trust data, but you got to look at the data. Are they doing anything less? Are they giving you, you know, good care like your doctor? So be open-minded. So now, if I don't know if you want to talk about when they're being discharged, because this is a whole different process. Yeah. So we've been in the hospital Mm -hmm. and as an advocate, a Mm -hmm. caregiver advocate and an advocate, you Mm -hmm. have been providing all of the information to the medical team. Mm -hmm. Mom is good. She's been well cared for. And they Mm -hmm. tell you, okay, mom's going home tomorrow. Mm -hmm. She's going to need one of a couple of things. Mm -hmm. She might need some aftercare, meaning Mm -hmm. she will have to go to rehab. Let's say she broke a hip or something and needs rehab. Or when she comes home, she's going to need X, Y, Z care. So there's the possibility that you'd want to engage home care agency to help Mm -hmm. you with some hands-on care, Mm -hmm. or perhaps she needs some wound care Mm -hmm. based on whatever it was that happened while she was at the hospital. So as the caregiver, you know, how do you even begin to explore what comes next? Well, first of all, we always say discharge planning starts on admission. This is what we as nurses think. That's why you have discharge planners, social workers in the hospital. As soon as your mom or dad is admitted, they're going to ask you, what are your plans for discharge? Okay. Is she able to come home? Yes or no. And if she does come home, what support or services might you need? But again, it depends on what the hospital cost was. If it's something well simple, you know, many times complications occur while you're in the hospital. You can go in for one reason and then it kind of mushrooms into multiple problems and the length of stay is lengthened. So you think your mom is just going to need a little therapy, but then at the end, she's got multiple things going on with her that makes her a little bit more of a hand, not a handful, but... She requires a lot more care than what you were prepared for. So that's why if you keep talking to the providers, you know, every step of the way, then they keep you in the know as to this is what we're looking at. Okay. If it's changed, they'll tell you. So you would be in the know. Very rarely do I do I hear somebody say, well, they just sent her home. I had no idea she was going home. I know it's happened sometime, but it should not. So if they're not addressing it as a caregiver, you should be asking the question, okay? What are the plans? When do you expect her to go home? What do you think she's going to need when she goes home? So that way you can have that frank conversation. Please do not try to paint a rosy picture. If If she needs a ramp, you don't have it. You need to say, I'm going to need help with this. If she's going to need equipment, you're going to say, oh, I'm going to need you know, help with this. So you have to be very open-minded as to, what you are able to provide. And I think this is one of the things caregivers do. Sometimes the patient is demanding to go home and they're not safe going home. Or you're not able or available to provide all the services. You have to be very practical about that. And sometimes it creates a little friction between you and mom or the aging parent. But you have to say, mom, I'm looking for your safety. I don't think you're safe. I'm not comfortable with you going home yet. And this is where rehab comes in, where you get therapy every single day. You get stronger a little bit quicker. But again, now we have COVID. It kind of makes things a little bit more difficult. Most people don't want to be in those uh, nursing homes because of COVID. They want to come home. So it creates a whole different level of stress for caregivers. Absolutely. That's that's a whole different it's conversation, whole, isn't it? Because you it have is. to think about 
falls and the potential for that coming out of a hospital stay. And you, as you don't a want to get readmitted. Hurting yourself too. You hurt mm-hmm. yourself sometimes caring for, uh, because you're not a trained professional. You don't want to have to be the one, you know, lifting mom up and transferring her. I can tell you how many times the caregiver <laughs> becomes sicker than the patient. Yes, that's very common. <laughs> because it is so overwhelming. So be, like I said, be very realistic about what you physically what kind of care you can physically provide. And sometimes you have to have a strong conversation with the patient themselves to say, mom, I love you, but. So this is that tough love. You got to do it sometime. Sometimes. This is true. Exactly. Sometimes older people have a way of manipulating the situation, making you feel guilty. Uh, but then again, you get yourself in a situation, like you say, then they fall again. And then the second time is always worse than the first. Mm-hmm. So be very realistic. Talk to the social worker. They're very knowledgeable about explain your home situation, your work situation. Can you take FMLA to take care of your care of your loved one? This is very important. And I want to interject in here a little bit about being connected. One of the major issues we have in this country is as we age, people isolate. They think, like I said, you move into an older community, people start dying. Now think about it. You're living with 80 other 80-year-olds, so they're not going to be able to provide (laughs) too much assistance if you need it. So if you're in a church, and I think one of the things I wanted to push one time when I was, I think I was in Polk County then, is the community has to step in. You can't rely only on the hospital and the home care companies because that's another conversation about what's covered, what's not covered. And I know you know a lot of it, Liz, because you have publications about that. Because Mm -hmm. people expect that a physician would say, oh, I'm going to write for you for home health. In the patient's mind, they think somebody is going to come home with them and stay with them for 24 hours. Right. So when you, as the home care person, go in there and you say, oh, no, ma'am, I'm going to come three times a week for an hour. <laughs> they just get right. so upset. It's a rude awakening. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I can give you a couple of numbers for private pay. They can afford it. It's super expensive care. Right. So, and then they're like, oh, is there anybody in the community? Well, you know how the waiting list is for these type of services? No. Be connected in your community. And I tell people, if you're if you're an empty nester, you're not working, you know, create something like that in your church or women's group where you guys can provide some of that services to the seniors or to even support a caregiver who's probably stressed out and overwhelmed and just need a couple of hours to go get her hair done, get her nails done. Those things, yes. that partnership between the healthcare system and the community. You talk about the baby boomers, thousands of them, you know, turning 65 every single day in this in this country. This is the only model in my mind that is going to work. Like you say, the caregiver understand that you're going to be a caregiver whether you like it or not. So get ready, you know, get That's your mind true. get your mind straight because mama's not going anywhere and she's your responsibility. Have the conversation, prepare, get ready and then connect. Connect. Yes. Even if you don't want to start it, start talking to other women, other, what do they call them? The sandwich generation. We have the teenagers yep. at home and then the, the, the parents. Start talking among yourselves and say, okay, ladies, my mom, my parents are down the street, but they're getting old. What are we going to do? How can we make this work? You know, and you do have those um, healthcare, how do they call them? Um, not healthcare advocate, but they're the one that kind of help the family manager care care managers. You know, oh yes, life care managers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You have some of those people to kind of help you sift through all of that, but understand that you're going to need some help, and you have to be open to saying, you know, yeah, I wish I could have somebody come stay with mom and for a couple of hours where I can go grocery shopping or something like that. Right. You know, that's the only way we're going to make it. And I think for me and my mom, the only way I made it is because my siblings were involved, you know, because it can't be my, you know, just me. You can't do, you can't do that. You know, you're going to make yourself get sick yourself. Then you won't be able to. Well, that's true. 
It's okay. So uh, all right, everybody listening, go ahead. They're going <laughs> to laugh at me when I say this because it is a common thread, self-care. self-care. You must practice self-care. And what Maggie's saying just drives that point home because, I mean, honestly, are you overwhelmed by the conversation that we just had? Mm. There's a lot that goes into it. And if you are not at your best, you cannot give your best. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we always end up finding that in every conversation, the importance of self-care for So thank you for bringing that up again. No, you're welcome. Um, and women, we're the worst. You know, we just yes. caregivers, care for everybody, the babies, the kids, the husband, the mom. What about us? If you're not well, you cannot care for anybody else. Yes, take off the Wonder Woman cape. <laughs> you don't need it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Take it off. But you know, we Get bought into this lie that we can't be everything to everybody. It is such yeah. a lie. You know, you can't. And then That's true. something is going to suffer. Whether if it's your health or your relationships, something is going to get. Mm. So Good, good words yep. of advice. Hey, do you have any favorite resources like websites or books or anything like that that you'd like to recommend? You know, I saw that point on what you sent me and... Actually, I don't have any particular resource. I know for anybody dealing with dementia, the Alzheimer's Association has a lot of resources online. Yes. Um, I don't think I've been to the care.com website, but I think uh, a lot of those places have links to different mm-hmm. other organizations. But I think even if your primary care doctor, they have a lot of information in their office also. So go right. ahead and ask him and say, what do you suggest? Do you have any ideas? Do you have anybody in the community that you can refer me to? The social workers, let me tell you, I have a lot of respect for these ladies and gentlemen because they have so much information, much more than I could ever. I mean, I have the medical stuff, but they know a lot more ways of, like I, I saw a patient yesterday and I'm trying to figure out how to get him a cell phone because with him, he feels so disconnected. So I'm like, mm. how can I find this man a cell phone so he can regain his sense of control? You right. know, because that makes his stay a little bit easier. So a social worker is such a great resource. So like I said, don't be afraid to ask because if one yes. person doesn't know it, the next person might. So open your mouth and ask. Maggie, thank you so much for taking the time to share today. This was incredible and so much information packed into one hour. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. You're quite welcome, Liz. I really enjoy doing it. And thank all of you for listening. I know that we threw a lot of information at you today and I hope it was helpful. And I'm going to quote an old cliche here and tell you that failing to prepare Mm. is planning to fail. So don't be that person. Get your stuff in order and be ready to take care of whatever situation might come your way. And check back next week for another new episode. If you're receiving our weekly newsletter, look for that in your inbox first thing Tuesday morning. If you're getting the newsletter, you may have noticed that we've added an additional tip of the week in there, just some extra information to support the episode and topic of the week. Most of the time, that's what it's related to, but sometimes also some helpful items and things that'll make your life easier. If you're not getting the newsletter, that's your homework this week. Just go to sageaging.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and click subscribe. Finally, let's connect on social media. Look for Sage Aging on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and you can find me, Liz Craven, on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll talk real soon.